Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to keep you moving. With a full range of services from oil changes and tire rotations to filters, wipers, and more, we've got what your car needs right when you need it. So you're ready for whatever's next. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care? That's a job for Jiffy. Hello there, welcome to This Week in History with me, your host Dan the Viking, and we have another special episode for you guys this week. We are joined again by my father, and we shall be covering possibly one of the most famous sea or naval battles in, well, definitely in British history. I would go as far as saying in world history as well, um, and that is the Battle of Trafalgar. So for those of you who have seen that, or have seen on the Facebook group, it is quite an obvious picture. Um, and Nelson stands very proud in London at the moment and hopefully will do forever. So what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about naval history and a little bit about naval battles in the, uh, in the 19th century and how, basically how the Battle of Trafalgar changed how naval battles were fought and you know, learn a little bit more about why this is such an important battle in British history, why it's so famous um and you know what what differences this made to the whole world really because you you know you're talking about 1805 um sort of around this era that you you're talking about the napoleonic wars towards the end of the napoleonic wars um you're talking about sort of 25 years later and this battle had a significant you know part to play with that because obviously with uh, Napoleon wanting to take over England and so on and so forth, there was no way he could do that unless he could take control of the channel. So same problem the Germans had in 1940, where they, they can't take England unless they take the channel. And the only people stood in the way was the Royal Navy and, at the time, Vice Admiral Nelson. So what I'll do, I'll introduce my father and we shall start. He'll tell you a little bit about... Um, like I said, about the style of, of fighting in this in this era um, and, again, how victory and Battle of Trafalgar was different. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, you'll all find this interesting. Um, we'll start with the fact that you said it was uh, a very famous battle and probably the, be- the biggest battle in naval history. Uh, it it's got to be the biggest battle in naval history. There have been others. Um, I'm thinking of the American Battle of Midway, yeah. uh, but that was aircraft carriers. This was pure navy. Yeah, and as a result of this battle, nobody challenged the Royal Navy for over a hundred years. As oh. a result, the British were able to colonise the world without any um, any challenges. There was nobody that was able to challenge. 
at the time of Trafalgar, and we're talking sort of 1805, realistically, there was only one group that could challenge England um, and for uh, the purposes of, of this particular sort of era, England meant current UK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, the ships of the time were all sail-powered. They, uh, they couldn't go very fast. They were entirely unpredictable. And the Navy of all nations had what they call ships of the line. That that was the navy, um, like the equivalent of battleships nowadays. Yeah, that sort of. Yeah. Um, and and there were six types of ships of the line, uh, types one to six. We'll concern ourselves with uh, first and second mainly, but we'll there were there were third rates. Your first rate ship of the line, that's the battleship of its time. It was the most sophisticated machine in the world at the time. All the ropes, all the riggings, all the sails and everything. Uh, they averaged 100 guns. Wow. That's quite a lot of firepower. It is. 50, uh, 50 on each side. And they were crewed between 850 and 900 men. So quite a few. A lot yeah, of men. quite a few on In a small ship. space as well. Yeah. They weren't very big. Uh, a second rate had between 80 and 98 guns and had between 700 and 750 men. And a third rate was uh, 64 to 80 guns, only had two decks, and had 500 to 650 men. Still a lot of firepower, though. You're talking 80 cannons. 80 cannons. Side. Yeah, so. yeah. When you go back to one of your previous um, podcasts, yeah. you've got to think of Blackbeard. Yes, his ship didn't have many that many guns. No, sloops had uh, around 20 to 40. 20 guns. You come up against a first-rate ship of the line with 100 guns plus and nearly 900 men. You're talking some serious naval warfare there. Yeah. Right. Uh, they were called ships of the line. Do you know why? Uh, I believe it's the uh, to do with the way they fought. So in this period, uh, a lot of naval battles, they would pretty much go one behind the other, very British fashion, straight line, and broadside against broadside, either side, and pretty yeah, much. Yeah, pretty much right. Uh, pretty Yeah, that's pretty much the way they did it. What they used to do was they'd form up in a line. Yeah. Um, the reason that they all formed up in a line is communication was easier. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, flags on the front ship could be repeated on the second ship and on the third, whereas if they're all all over the place they can't do it uh you can line up your ships in a particular order so the faster ships are uh, not in ha hampered by the slower ships when they're moving and you can break away yeah when there's a lot when, of damage when there's can... a lot of damage and you could turn in your inner eye the reason that they fought in line was because all the ships guns were down one side yeah, they want. Yeah, the same yeah, number of guns side. on each side. Yeah, it makes yeah. Sense. So, to prevent a melee, the ships would form up in a line and run parallel to the enemy. That allows the ships to fire all of their guns on one side, and that's called a broadside. Yeah, yeah. Hence the word 
broadside. And that was the tactic at the time. It had been for years, sort of ever since battleships of, the, of that sort of style had come out. The disadvantage, no forward firing guns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't fit, would they? Okay. The- so the other advantage is if your side was losing, you could just turn away and the other the other ships had to carry on had to carry on yeah so but um you you sort of think that's the way they fought now contrary to all sort of popular belief there was no uh exploding shells right uh, they were all solid it's all solid the only explosions that you would ever get on ships were hand grenades right they were like little... Little tiny. It was basically... The same old, as they are today. Like you're getting Tom and Jerry, yeah? Yeah. A little ball with a, sting, a bit of string coming out the top of it, light it, throw it. Yeah. yeah? Filled with gunpowder. That's it. Now, you've got to think... We'll talk about HMS... His, um, HMS Victory. Yeah. All right, because that's the British flagship. The uh, damage that HMS Victory could cause just with solid shot is amazing. Right. A 32 pounder shot, which was the heavy guns in victory, yep. could put a hole in two foot of solid oak from a mile distance. Wow. Well, they weren't a mile away when they fired, so. No. And when you consider that the ships are made of wood, so even if the, the, the cannonball doesn't go through on the other side of the, the, the ship, the splinters were horrendous. Mm. It would just splinter and send shards of wood absolutely everywhere. Bearing in mind that the gun decks were just one single room. Yeah, I've seen seen the uh, I've seen Victory down yeah. at Portsmouth. It's literally yeah, the just the gun deck is just one single room, front to back of the ship, with ga- with cannons either side of the room. Yeah. So they are there. The uh, HMS Victory had 30 32 pounder guns on their lower deck. It had 28 24 pounders on the middle deck. And on the upper gun deck, there were 30 12 pounder guns. And then you have the, um, the sort of open deck area where they had small arms. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Victory's crew. You've got a very small ship, because it's not very big. It's only 226 foot long, and it's only 51 foot wide. Yeah, small in comparison to some of the ones that we've covered, definitely. Into the actual battle, 822 men. Right. So you've got 822 people on a fairly small wooden ship. And bearing in mind, it doesn't weigh much. It only weighs 2,500 tons. Sounds a lot when you put it like that, but then when you compare it to, you know, the, the Titanic, for example. You're, yeah, 46,000 tons. Yeah. That's wow. a lot. Everybody would assume that in the age of sail and the 1800s, the Royal Navy was the Royal Navy and it was all English and British. I would have thought so, yeah. You would certainly have thought so. Out of the 822 people on HMS Victory, at the time of the battle, there were only 441 English people. Wow. The remainder were made up of other nations, obviously Scots, Irish, Welsh, Channel Islands. There were 21 
Americans on board HMS Victory at the time of the battle. So it's strange thinking that Americans would even want to fight in, in our Navy. It's but very, yeah. very true. It was a Russian. Wow. There were nine from Jamaica and the West Indies. Wow. And there were one from Africa. And believe it or not, three Frenchmen fighting right. against their own against side. Against their own Navy. <laughs> well, were they... Uh well, they, I bet they, were, they weren't volunteers. Were they volunteers? They would or be were, volunteers, yeah. Oh, they weren't, they would they weren't be press volunteers. ganged? Or? A few of them would have been press ganged, but the, um, the, the non-English would certainly not have been. They would have been volunteers. Wow. So it was a multicultural ship, even at the time of, in 1805. Wow, so mate, I wouldn't have thought that at all. No. Nah. Most people don't realise that. Actually, if you look at um, Nelson's Column, which commemorates Lord Nelson, and that's in Trafalgar Square, Yes. In London, one of the plaques has actually got a black sailor on one of the plaques. It's actually the south-facing plaque, but if you look at it, the left-hand side, there is a black sailor. Oh, so they should be commemorated if they were there. Do you oh, know what I mean? yeah, yes, definitely. 100%. Commemorate everyone who fought. So, yes. I mean, HMS Victory, it was an old ship when it, when it went into battle. It was built in 1763. And it cost £63,176 and three shillings. <laughs> three shillings. <laughs> yeah. That's around about 50, 50 million today. That's uh, it's a fair still, bit of... Still, still not that bad. No, it's not expensive considering some of the battleships nowadays go out with... Billions, know, don't they? Billions, yeah. Mm. So The... Um, the cannons that they uh, had on HMS Victory and at the battle fired and various, various types of shot. Obviously, everybody knows about the solid shot. Yeah. That's just a big ball um, of weight. Yes. Yeah, that's solid shot. There's canister. Yeah, that's what uh, we covered a canister shot in the um, the la- one of the last episodes with the the uh, Battle of Quebec City. So. That yeah. was like a like a big shotgun, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, in the case of the the uh, the naval canister, it was cans filled with dozens of musket balls. Yeah, and obviously fire it. The can burst open, and it just made the gun like a giant shotgun. You had grape shot. Now, grape shot was slightly different to canister. That was small round shots in a canvas rat, canvas bag. And that shoved down the barrel. And it was made of thin bits of metal, wood, discs, uh, all held together with a centre bolt. And when they fired it, it was, uh, it was used against people on the top deck. So anybody massing on a top deck, grape shot and canister shot were the two sort of anti-personnel shots. The most damage. To people, yeah. Yeah. You had two other types of shot. You had chain shot and bar shot. Chain right. shot, two cannonballs together with a piece of chain. That would take down rigging and masts. and Rigging, like. bump, masts, sails. Bar shot, two half... It's a cannonball cut in half with a bar in between. So basically, it's like a big dumbbell. Wow. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, that spins through the air. That will take down masts. Yeah, and anyone standing in the way as well. Mm-hmm. And you had something called a langridge. Now, langridge, have you seen the film Pirates of the Caribbean? 
Yeah. You know when they load one of the guns up with forks, knives, and everything else? Yeah. That's called language. And they did it. <laughs> Anything that they could find. Junk, scrap metal, bolts, rocks, gravel, old musket balls, anything that they can fire. That's what it is. It's actually a, 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 a thing that actually existed. Oh, wow. But yeah. Disney didn't make it up. No, Disney didn't. And then, of course, you've got fire arrows to set fire. Because the ships are wooden, set them on fire. Yeah, I mean, that's when the explosions happened, wasn't it? You know, if you ever got an explosion on a ship, it was when they caught fire. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Trafalgar was against... The, what we call the Combined Fleet and the Royal Navy. Yep. The Combined Fleet being Spanish and French. The Spanish and French always fought on what they could, what can only be described as hit-and-run tactics. They'd turn up in a line of battle. They would fire as their ship rolled upwards. So their cannons were aiming for the rigging, the masts, the sails, yeah, all of that. Yeah, to cripple the ship. That cripples the ship. And obviously then if the French, uh, if they start losing, then the French and Spanish could turn and go and the other, and the other side couldn't catch up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way the French um, fought. The British tactic was totally different. British tactic was to cause as much damage as possible to the hull of the ship, creating... Uh, a reduction in that, the enemy's firing firepower, causing as many of the uh, ship's crew to be injured. And then the British could go alongside, take the ship, and they've got a ship. It might only be a hulk, yeah, but they can tow it back and they can use it as prize money. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the British government would pay them to bring back ships that they could convert into British ships. And the crew of the... The, the capturing crew all got a percentage of the Whatever. prize money. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're in Nelson's case, he used one of the ships, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah. Now, at the time of the battle, the British crews had been at sea for about oh, three, four years. They'd been training. They'd been at sea. They'd been doing everything that, that the British Navy would do. And they'd been blockading the French and Spanish. They knew a battle was coming. They'd known it for years. And obviously that caused a few problems because you've got British sailors sitting on their ships for a long time, but they're all at sea. The French had a slightly different problem. The French and Spanish ships had been blockaded in port for several years. So... They couldn't train. They weren't ready for battle. They were a bit sloppy on their sailing. And their crews had got used to a life on ashore. Yeah, so the advantage was, was with the English. It was totally with the English. Now they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to go out to battle. They knew battle was coming. Napoleon had told them battle was coming. Napoleon had, uh, he was in charge of the French. He'd decided we are going to go and take England. England is going to become a part of my empire. And like you said at the beginning, in order to do so, he had to clear the English Channel. Yeah. So the French and Spanish navies, which had joined up, knew that a battle was coming. So a lot of these sailors deserted. Because they're in port all the time, they just went off. Left their ship, didn't come home, didn't go back. 
Fair enough. I don't blame them. So at the time of the battle, Villeneuve's fleet, and Villeneuve was the French commander, he was short of just on 2,000 sailors. Wow. So, uh, and those that he did have were inexperienced, and on any of the rare occasions that the, the combined fleet could leave port and manage to get away, the training was all on the sailing of the ship, not on the fighting of the ship. So they were very, very rusty. The British Navy at the time was organised and it, was, it had been around for a long time and the British officers were career sailors. Most of the captains had spent 30 years or more actually getting to that rank. The French, on the other hand, had just come out of a revolution. They'd mm. chopped the heads off of the upper classes and unfortunately that included most of their senior naval officers. So they didn't have any battle experience in their navy. The leader of the French fleet at the time uh, was um, Pierre-Charles Jean-Baptiste Sylvester de Villeneuve. We just call him Villeneuve. Yeah, I was going to say, don't be saying that the whole way <laughs> <Yeah>. through. <laughs> no. um, he was not as good as Admiral Nelson. No one was. Nobody was. Yeah, Nelson was the the most decorated sailor of, of in the British Navy. And he let everybody know it as well. Whenever oh. you saw him, he was all... Boy, did he let everybody know de- it. Decorated with his medals and... Uh, Villeneuve had actually met uh, Nelson in a battle several years previous, about seven years prior. Battle of the Nile? Yes, that's where he lost... Did he lose his arm? I think it's where he lost his arm, the Nile. Yeah, uh, Villeneuve came up against Nelson, Villeneuve got beaten. And his ship was only one, one of only two that actually escaped the battle. If I remember rightly, the the Battle of the Nile, they had a a French um, captain who actually was shot in half. He had his legs blown off and they put him in a barrel and he ended up directing his ship in the barrel. (laughs) Because he couldn't stand up. Highly but, possible. Yeah, there's a painting. I can't remember where it is. So I'll have to look into that for for my next episode. But mm. yeah, so we've done we've done the little basic bits, and we yeah, that's I mean that's, that's you know a, how it that's, that's, that's that sort of lays the scene. We know the we know the two the two teams or two armies or two navies, and uh, we know how they fought. So why was this battle different? Okay, we start off. Napoleon Bonaparte was the leader of all the French forces at the time, and his ambition was to invade Great Britain. He was a soldier, and he was a very, very good soldier. But he wasn't a sailor, and he could calculate the time it would take an army to get from A to B, fight a battle and get back. But he had no concept of naval warfare. Right. He couldn't get his head round it. And... Naval warfare at the time, you just couldn't have um, specific timings. It just was not possible. So, you know, for the best part of 1804, Napoleon had been assembling his army on the coast of France in the preparation for the invasion, and he needed the English Channel to be free of the Royal Navy because the Royal Navy were ca- was causing him a real pain in the neck. Yeah, well, yeah. They, they have done for every one of them they, over the years. Yeah. So he needed the English Channel to be free of the Royal Navy. 
problem he had was the Royal Navy was split into several fleets. So you had the Channel Fleet, you had the Mediterranean Fleet, you had Nelson's fleet. This would be why he was Vice Admiral and not Admiral, because he was in charge of his fleet, but not the whole of the... Not the whole thing. Yeah. So, in 1804, Napoleon has got annoyed. He wants, he wants to move. He wants to get across the Channel. He wants to beat the, beat the English and have England as part of his empire. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he orders Villeneuve to sail. This is what he orders Villeneuve to do. And Villeneuve was blockaded in by the Royal Navy in Toulon Harbour in France. And in order for the actual invasion to take place, Napoleon came up with a plan. But it's a soldier's plan. If it was fought on land, it would have won. No problem whatsoever. But we're talking naval. Yeah. So what we've got is the plan that Napoleon came up with was to draw off all the British defences and the British fleets. And what he proposed to do, he told Villeneuve to sail down to the West Indies. Now, that's not a short journey. No, it's not. Not, not with a ship that can only do 14 miles an hour flat out on a good day. With the wind behind you. Yeah. yeah. There were days when there was no wind, so you just couldn't. You know, you couldn't sail on those days. It would just, the ship would just be stationary. But what the plan was, was he wanted Villeneuve to sail down to the West Indies, which would take six to ten weeks. And there he would meet up with a Spanish fleet. And along with that fleet, he would attack the British islands in the Caribbean. Word would get back to Great Britain, eventually. Britain would have to react, send their fleet over to the Caribbean, by which time Villeneuve would be sailing back to the English Channel, block the English Channel, and then when the English fleet comes up, they can't get through. Nelson uh, Napoleon has his chance to go across the Channel. It makes sense. That was the plan. Would work if you were walking and you were out on land. Not when it's... Uh, but not when you're dealing with the sea. No. <laughs> not when it's a six-week journey. So that, that was the idea. And, of course, that would allow the army d'Angleterre yeah. to invade the, uh, England. Now, Villeneuve decided that he was going to actually do what his boss had told him. And 29th of March, 1805, he took 11 ships, got past Nelson's blockade, because Nelson's ships were blockading him in Toulon Harbour. Yeah. He managed to sneak past them, and on the 8th of April, he started crossing the Atlantic. Now, unfortunately for Villeneuve, Nelson became aware of the plan well before Villeneuve got to the Caribbean. Yeah. So Nelson decided we're going to go we're going to go after him and chase him and chase him. 
Nelson was four and a half weeks, five weeks behind him. So it was a month behind him. But it does, it gives the, you're talking that time difference for the English to find out, you'd been talking two months before they'd have got there, whereas this way he's only a month. Well, yeah, I think Napoleon was working on the fact that it would take somewhere between four to five months for the British to realise that their Caribbean islands were being attacked. Yeah. And and obviously they found out in four to five weeks. So they ch- Nelson is now chasing Villeneuve across the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Once Villeneuve gets to the West Indies, because he doesn't know Nelson is chasing him. No, because they're far enough, too far yeah, behind. Too, too far behind, yeah. So now, Villeneuve arrives in the French island of Martinique, and he waits for the other fleet to join him. Yeah. It doesn't turn up. Hmm. So now Villeneuve is on his own. He's been there for a whole month. Nelson catches up with him. Yeah. And... That's a scary sight. It is. On the 7th of June, so we're still in 1805, Nelson reaches Antigua. So Villeneuve has really had enough of this. I'm not staying here and fighting Nelson. Caribbean or... Yeah. In, in the channel, it's not going to happen. I'm off. I'm off. So he sends, sets out back for Europe. He hasn't attacked any British islands at all. No, he's been sat there. Nelson now realises that Villeneuve's gone, starts to chase back across the Atlantic. Right. <laughs> so now Villeneuve's ships... And the British ships on the way back were about the same speed. So the, Nelson never catches up with him. But Villeneuve, when he gets to the co- to the, the English Channel, or just below the English Channel, he comes across another British fleet. Right. The, the English, the Channel fleet, which hadn't gone off to the Caribbean. Only Nelson's fleet. So, he's, yeah, he's only been chased by half of the... Exactly. So, at Cape Finisterre, Villeneuve comes across... Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. Vice Admiral Calder. Villeneuve doesn't want to fight. So he... He he shadows the British fleet, staying well out of its way, and then after two days, disappears off to a place called Acarona. Yeah, so safety. Now, August the 1st. Uh, Once he's there... He gets orders from Napoleon, who, believe me, is really, really, to put it politely, pissed off. Yeah. Because his plan has now not worked. And he tells Villeneuve to sail to Brest. Okay. You will get to Brest. You will now 
help my army get across the channel. Irrespective of any other plan, this is what you're going to do. So, Villeneuve, I'm not, I'm not sure about this, he believes false reports that there's a British fleet in the Bay of Biscay. Okay. I ain't going there. They've got a fleet there. My sailors, still not up to a, a, a full-on fight. I'm going to go. So he goes back to Cadiz. Right. Now, this is where the problem starts. He's not listening to Napoleon at all, is he? He's not listening in the slightest. By the time he gets to Cadiz, that gave Nelson the time to blockade Cadiz. So they're back in port. So after nine months, they're back to square one. Villeneuve is in port. Nelson is outside. Hmm. Blockading him in. It's not a good move. You know, it's... it's you know, But Nelson's got a, a card up his sleeve. Nelson stations his fleet 50 miles offshore. But what he does is he puts little frigates, small ships of the line, yeah, um, fours and fives, in line of sight. Right. That makes sense. So they think that it's a smaller fleet. So they think it's a smaller fleet. But line of sight means that Villeneuve in port can only see two ships. He knows Nelson's out there, but he doesn't know where, he doesn't know how far away, and he doesn't know how big. He can just see two ships. And he doesn't know what ships. And he doesn't know what they are. And because they haven't gone into port, there's no spies, there's no conversation. The, the ships are still out there. Yeah. They've gone from the Caribbean all the way back, so the sailors haven't got off the ships. Hmm. So, the way Nelson had it, the ship nearest the port would signal the second ship. The second ship would signal the third, which is now out of sight from Villeneuve, the fourth, and so on. And Nelson would get to know what's going on in port. So, Nelson knew that the French had to be defeated and the battle was coming. So, he's decided, I'm going to make my own plan I'm going to form a battle plan. This battle is going to happen. So 12 days before the actual battle, Nelson comes up with a plan. And it is revolutionary. No, it's mental. It's not. <laughs> it is nutter. absolutely stupid. Yeah. When you, when you actually sit back and think about it, Nelson was a great one for taking chances. He took a very, very big chance on this. Yeah, he did. Now, his plan was realistically, instead of lining up alongside the opposition and blasting away, as it's been done for years, Nelson decides that he's going to make his forces into pairs. So he's going to put two lines. And he is going to drive his ships straight at the, 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 the combined fleet. Yeah. So if you can imagine, Nelson is is envisioning a line of French and Spanish ships. And he wants to punch a hole. And he wants to put two lines coming in from one side. Yeah. Brilliant idea. Until you realise that 
the front of the attacking column was the only one that could engage the enemy. And only when it got there. And only when it got there. So it meant that the lead ships would be under fire from the whole of the enemy without the ability to fire back. For a good few miles as well. Yeah. And they're moving at 14 miles an hour. Uh, if, if they're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Now... It's not good. Nelson knew that the French gunners were ill-trained. They were, they'd have difficulty firing from moving gun platforms. He'd worked out that the Spanish fleet, if it became a battle, would be sailing across a heavy swell, which means the ships would roll from side to side. The British guns, they could fire three shots in two minutes. Wow, that's pretty quick. The French and Spanish could fire one shot in two minutes. The British were three times faster at loading their guns and firing than the Spanish and French. Yeah. Because of the practice and because of everything that went on. They were better. So Nelson decided his ship, HMS Victory, would lead one line, and Admiral Collingwood... Admiral Collingwood <laughs> would lead the other column in the Royal Sovereign. So Collingwood actually outranked Nelson at this point. Yes. But we don't celebrate but Collingwood. We don't, we don't celebrate <laughs> Collingwood. That's quite... Well, it wasn't his plan, was it? No. The Royal Sovereign was another first-rate ship of the line. Yeah. So I've it was heard. a 100-gunner. And uh, it was faster. And it was three decks. It was, was one of the fastest ships we had as well, wasn't it? It was because it had just been had just come out of renovation. It had, yeah. at the bottom of it had been cleaned and it had been copper plated, so there yeah. was no resistance. Still slow, but, but it, it was would uh, a little bit quicker. Than the it rest. was a little bit quicker than the rest. There was, as a side note, there was one ship in the world that had four decks. That was the Santa Trinidad, the, the Spanish San- Santissima Trinidad. That's the one. Yeah. It was the largest ship in the world. It could. It had 130 guns. And we blow it to hell. And it was on the Spanish side at the Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah. yeah. So just as a thing. Now, obviously, Nelson's not stupid. So he ordered on a previous, years, years prior to the Battle of Trafalgar, he had ordered every ship in his fleet to be painted in stripes. Right. Okay. Didn't know that. Yeah. So the British fleet under Nelson... All the ships had what you call stripes front to back. Okay. Yeah. Everybody thinks that the victory was yellow and black. It wasn't. It was a sort of pukey orange colour and black. But uh, it was, yeah. That, so, and it's so you could identify the ships. Because bearing in mind, in those days, the amount of gun smoke that you would get, you wouldn't be able to see the, the ship you're firing at after the first broadside. No. No, that makes sense, actually. Okay. Now, Nelson sent general orders to his fleet and they were make the attack upon the enemy and follow up the blow until they are captured or destroyed and if individual ships are momentarily lost in the confusion they could do no better than pull alongside an enemy and fight broadside so basically, Nelson was saying, we're going to do this, and if it don't work, we're going to go back to going alongside the ship and firing. Yeah. Yeah, basically saying, 
the worst that can happen is we just go back to fighting normally. Yeah. Yeah, so it's either going to work or it isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So, in September, Napoleon orders Villeneuve to sail for Naples and attack the shipping in the Mediterranean. So, he want, now he's now fed up with Villeneuve. You go off into the Mediterranean and attack British ships. Yeah. Villeneuve don't want to do that either. So, in actual disregard of all his orders... He stays in Cadiz. Now, Villeneuve wasn't a coward. Villeneuve was realistic. He yeah. knew that in order to beat Nelson, certain things had to happen. And Villeneuve worked it out that the best way of beating Nelson was realistically to stay in port, tempt Nelson into the port, into the port area and just off the coast, where... Villeneuve's ships and the port defence guns could get him. Could, yeah. could get him. So Villeneuve wasn't stupid, but it just wasn't going to happen. Nelson knew this. Nelson did consider it, but he decided against it because he knew that he was liable to lose that one. Yeah, yeah, he had the advantage out in sea, and yeah, the French had it at base. So mid October. Villeneuve actually learnt that um, Napoleon was going to replace him. Napoleon had had enough. He was sending down another admiral to Cadiz to basically take over and order Villeneuve back to answer for the, his lack of uh, yeah of, of fighting. He's not listening. He's not following orders. Yeah, it's court martial. Yeah, realistically. So Villeneuve, according to uh, Napoleon, Villeneuve did not possess the strength of character to command a frigate. He lacks the determination and has no moral courage. Basically, he's calling him out. Yeah, he's saying he's a coward, but he's not. He's just realistic. Yeah. So Villeneuve found out that this was happening. Was funnily enough, a uh, supporter of Villeneuve rode ahead of this admiral that was coming down. Yeah, just to let him know. To let him know. 18th of October, Villeneuve's, I'm not having this, we sail. So Villeneuve gives the order for the French and Spanish fleets to leave Cadiz and they were going to engage Nelson. Yeah. They didn't know where, they didn't know when, but Villeneuve was now, this is it. If I don't go now, I'm going to get replaced. I'm probably going to lose my head like everybody else has in France in the revolution. <laughs> It's not good for me. Yeah, they killed the king as well. Yeah. So, he gives the order to sail on the 18th. He's got inexperienced crews. Cadiz wasn't very good, a very easy place to get in. It took the French and Spanish fleet two days to get out of Cadiz. Is that because they were untrained or is that because it's just difficult to get out? Yeah, both. Both. You know, it just took them to, to get out. It, they eventually left in a line they headed south and there was a predetermined order because if the big ships were at the back then they would steal the wind from the smaller ships at the front mm -hmm. and therefore the smaller ships would then get overtaken and so so there was a line so we now move up to the 20th of october okie dokes 
this is where it gets interesting. Yeah. If it hasn't been interesting before and you've switched off, <laughs> fine. If you've stayed with me, this is where it gets interesting. During the evening of the 20th of October, bearing in mind that Villeneuve is now out of Cadiz and he is trying to get out and get somewhere, he knows that Nelson's coming. The French ship, the Achille, spotted a force of 18 ships, British, in pursuit of Villeneuve's fleet. So Villeneuve, during the evening, began to prepare his fleet for battle. This was during the night, the night of the 20th into the 21st. They were all ordered into a single line, as per the normal strategy that was of the time. And the following day, so we're talking the 21st, Nelson's fleet of 27 ships four and four frigates were spotted. They had the wind behind them. That meant that they were sailing. I'm going to turn my ships around and I'm going to make them into three lines. Okay. That lasted for about an hour. Uh, he then changed his mind and restored the single line. Okay. Was that was that because he saw that Nelson was doing something different? Or was that just because he thought, I can't beat him the conventional way, I'm going to try something? He Nelson hadn't changed his line. Nelson was just in a line at this point. Oh, so it didn't look. It didn't look any different to a normal battle. But the result of Neil Villeneuve changing his mind was just an uneven problem all the ships went in different directions and none of them knew what they were doing and it caused instead of a straight line a little bit of a curve the ships were in a line but they were in a curve it stretched about five miles from front ship to back ship right 4 a.m on the 21st nelson gives the order to prepare for battle yeah so he sends the signals. Now, signals at that time were all sent up by flags. Each word was either spelt out or had a particular flag sequence. Right. So they raised these flags and they turned around and they had the signals sent to all the other yeah, ships. Yeah, so everyone can see it. So everyone can see it. So 4 a.m., Nelson gives the British fleet form up in a prearranged formation. Yeah, and they all knew what this was. They knew what it was because 12 days previously they'd sorted it out. Yeah, so they were well prepared for it rather than the French who Mm. were scrambling. As per normal, Nelson then goes down below decks and writes his will. Okay. All officers did that prior to a battle just in case. They didn't expect to die, but there was a good possibility they might, and therefore... Yeah, they did it just in case. So Nelson was no different. 6 a.m., Nelson gives the uh, the order, prepare for battle, battle stations. Yeah, so get everything ready. Now, for the British fleet, this means that all non-essential furniture to get stowed away, all the tables, the chairs, and some of these items are all loaded into what they call the longboats yeah. and are towed behind the ship. So they don't get... So they don't get damaged. Yeah. Yeah. All the cooking fires get extinguished. 
All the fighting decks are covered in sand or or sawdust. Soak up any blood and prevent gun crews from slipping over. The gun crews prepare the guns. Mm -hmm. Powder monkeys. Kids. Little boys, 10 years old. They carried the explosives for the guns up and down the stairs. It's a nice safe job for a child, isn't it? Uh, They took their positions. All the gun crews who slept with their guns, you've got six per gun, all their hammocks are rolled up and they're taken up to the top deck. Mm -hmm. They're used as um, sandbags. They're they're pre-sandbags. That's that's their their function. They're rolled up and they're put on the sides of the ship to prevent musket fire going through them. It's a protection shield. It's quite sensible. Yep. Uh, The... um, Anti-boarding nets were strung across the top of the, the ships and down the sides. Yeah, to stop the... To stop the other side from getting in. So all this is going on at 6 o'clock. 8 o'clock, Villeneuve realises the size of the British fleet. He hasn't seen it, but he's realised it's there and it's big. Yeah, it's bigger than what he thought. It's bigger than what he thought. It's actually 27 ships. We're still less than what he had, though. He had 33. He, he had 33. So... So, yeah... It's not... All right. He realises the size of the British fleet, so he does something which is completely stupid. He orders a complete turnaround. 180-degree turn. Right. I've had enough of this. I don't want to battle. We're going back to Cadiz. <laughs> okay. Okay. The day before, there was strong winds. The morning of the battle... It was a gentle breeze. The wind had gone. There wasn't any wind. There was very, very little wind, although the wind was behind the British. And Villeneuve decides that he's going to do a U-turn. So all his ships now do a U-turn. That gives you a serious problem because now Villeneuve's ships, the front becomes the back, and they're all in a line five miles long. And they're not facing the right way. And for, they're not facing the right way. Yeah, because they have that predetermined line, and it's now opposite. We're now 11 o'clock in the morning. The battle hasn't started, but they know it's coming. They can't get away from it. Yeah, there's no wind for them to get away. Nelson's entire fleet is now visible to Villeneuve. Now, Villeneuve is on his flagship, the Busson Tour. Yep. He can see that the British are approaching in two parallel columns and they're coming from the side. This is unconventional. Unconventional? Unconventional, yeah. Yeah. The two fleets will be within range within an hour. Nelson knew that his fleet was outnumbered and outgunned. Villeneuve had 30,000 men, 2,568 guns. Nelson had 17,000 men and 2,148 guns. That's quite a lot less, actually. If you're talking 400 cannons, that's a... 400 cannons and 13,000 men. men. Yeah, so if they boarded, he's out completely outnumbered. He's lost. Yeah. Yeah, we knew that. The Spanish fleet, or the French and Spanish fleet, had six more ships of the line. Not just six more ships. Six more ships of the line. So they were they had six class one or two yep. more 
Not just now. That meant that there was no way that Nelson's ships could avoid one or two of them being doubled or tripled on, two onto one, three onto one. Bloody hell! You sort of think, well, here we go. Eleven forty-five. Nelson sends probably the most famous um, signal in British history. Yes. Yeah. England expects every man will do his duty. Yes, I've heard that. It's on. I used to live in Norfolk, which is where Nelson's from, and it is literally on every single pub, every single mm-hmm. thing. It's so. not what he wanted to send. No. <laughs> he wanted to send... Um, England confides that every man will do his duty. But the word confides isn't in... The code book, so it would have to have been spelt out individually, in individual letters. So, one of uh, the people on HMS Victory said to Nelson, "Can we swap confides with expects? Because that already has a its own. It's got a flag. It's got a flag." And Nelson went, "Yeah, that'll do." Yeah, yeah. Is still took. 12 different lifts of flags so 12 different up the masts spelling out to actually put England expects every man will do his duty yeah but I think it was quite well received wasn't it that from the from the crew there was a roar that went up from the sailors once they because they knew that Nelson was thinking of them yeah and I mean mean, Nelson had, had balls I've always said this about um, like in the last the last episode, or one, not the last one, but one of the last episodes, we covered um, Quebec and we covered uh, James Wolfe, General James Wolfe. Um, and this is another one where the British mentality for generals at this time was if you go in first. And it was that, and even at the table when Nelson come up with this plan, all his generals were, were saying, oh no, we'll go first, we'll go first. And he went, no, sod that, I'm... I'm in charge. I'm going to be the first one there. I'm, I want to be in the middle of it. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's that he definitely, definitely had balls to do, to do something like that. You sort of, so that's quarter to 11. Yeah. So quarter to 12, that's the signal that goes up. The fleets are coming into, coming into range very, very quickly now. Mm. So, Thomas Hardy, who is the captain of HMS Victory, yeah. although Nelson is the, the Vice Admiral, Hardy was in charge of, of HMS Victory, and he suggested that Nelson remove the decorations that Nelson was wearing on his coat. Now, Nelson had three uh, military orders sewn onto his coat. He was very flamboyant, wasn't he? He had the hat, he had the sash, he had all, the, he had everything all his on medals it. on him. He had, uh, and they are sort of crests that they're about six inches across they're not small and he had three of them down the left hand side of his jacket it was easy to spot yeah and thomas hardy suggested that he change his jacket nelson replied it's too late to be shifting a coat and they are military orders and i do not fear to show them to the enemy yeah he weren't scared of nothing was he no he weren't scared of it so, he should have been. Cause, cause well, he was quite yeah, easy his, history, history tells him, tells us now that he should have been. Yeah, yeah. Midday. So you're 15 minutes after the England expect signal, 
Admiral Villeneuve gives the order, engage the enemy. Yep. The Fogay fired the first shots at the Battle of Trafalgar. It's midday. They were aimed at the Royal Sovereign. Now, the British ships, because of the wind, although they had the wind behind them, they were only drifting slowly towards the French. But they were under full sail. You couldn't miss these ships. They had thousands of square yards of sail yeah. on them. And the Sovereign, like we said, had just had a hull clean, so it was slightly faster than the rest of the column, and it became the first target of the uh, the French and Spanish fleet. The Fogo and the Indomitable. Yeah. The San Justo, the San Leandro, all fired at her. No return of fire. Four onto one. It doesn't sound good, does it, when you put it like that? The Royal Sovereign reached the enemy first. Yeah. She broke the line of the uh, Spanish and French fleet, passing to the rear of the Santa Ana and in front of the Foguet. Yeah. The first British broadside. Yeah. The first British broadside was fired into the rear of the Santa Ana and at the same time the front of the Foguet. First British broadside was known and uh, was fired. They double shotted it. Yeah, so you're talking. They were that close. Double shots, two cannonballs in one cannon. So you're talking on almost a ton of iron just being <laughs> fired into the back of a ship. Fire it into the back of the ship. It's the weakest point of the ship. Yeah, and like you said, the gun decks, which would have been at the same level as the British guns, being a clear room. Those cannons, once they've gone through, there's nothing, nothing to stop them. No. There's no, the, 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 thick, a, the thick walls were on the side because the convention was... Hit the side. Hit the sides. Yeah. So they got a broadside straight up the back. The first British broadside from the Royal Sovereign disabled 400 crew and 14 of the guns on the Santa Ana. Wow. Took out 400 men. That would have been more than half of the crew on board as well, roughly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, sounds good, but the Royal Sovereign was on her own. Yeah, who said it was the fastest ship at the time, wasn't it? So she soon found herself being attacked by five others. So it's five onto one now. All right, the Santa Ana was severely disabled. Still, it could still fight. Yeah. But it was being attacked. The Royal Sovereign was being attacked by five ships. So, you know, I mean, a whole a broadside into the rear of a ship could, if it actually take out all three masts with one shot. Yeah, could sink it. Oh, it could easily sink it. But while this was going on, Victory was taking fire, but she wasn't able to fire back. She was slower. Yeah. So she was under fire from five ships: the Heros, the Santissima Trinidad, the Redoutable, and the uh, the Neptune. We're all shooting at Victory. No return. Victory couldn't fire back. And the Trinidad was the biggest one in the battle, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, most of the shots, fortunately, missed. Yeah. But she was still being hit. Um, 
Victory had her main steering wheel shot away. Now, bearing in mind, you've got four people steering the ship at the time. Eight in a, eight in a storm, four on a normal battle. That, um, that's gone. They've taken out... The, 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 the steering's gone. Uh, Victory is now having to be steered below decks on a tiller. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't it... Um it was done by ropes, wasn't it? It was done, st- done by ropes down, by down, down, down to um, one cannonball struck and hit Nelson's secretary, a gentleman called John Scott. He was standing next to Nelson, cut him in half. Bloody hell! Is that the uh, the famous quote from Nelson where he turned to Hardy and said, "This is too warm work to last long." Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In other words, um, this is <laughs> we're not going to be here for much longer. Yeah, I mean, John Scott was standing next to Nelson Yeah, when the cannonball took him out. Captain Hardy's clerk took over Nelson as Nelson's secretary. He was immediately killed as well. Bloody hell. Another cannonball, and this time it's bar shot, went sailing down the upper deck, took out eight Marines in one go. That particular bar shot is actually in the maritime museum at greenwich really that one shot they recovered and it is um it's on show but that killed eight marines on the top deck what the hell um captain hardy who was standing the other side of nelson had a, a big splinter go over his shoe rip his shoe in half took the buckle off the top of his shoe wow uh there were splinters firing absolutely everywhere people were getting cut down and all of this was before Victory could even fire a shot. So it doesn't look good up to this point. At this point, you know, this could have been a mistake. Yeah. Um, if the French and Spanish gunners were any good, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have got there. So Victory eventually breaks the line 30 minutes after the Royal Sovereign. Oh, so the Royal Sovereign's been fighting alone for a long time. 30 well, minutes. Sovereign was on its own, the front of its own line, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So what? Did, I'm guessing their their line was a little bit. Their line a bit was a little bit quicker, but not much. No. Royal Sovereign was the fastest ship there, and it was on its own for about thirty minutes, which in a battle like this is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the Royal Sovereign, uh, it broke the line about a third distance from the front. Yeah, and then so they sort of split it into three into sections. three sections, mm-hmm. and then in the middle. The um, the victory went. They broke the line between Villeneuve's ship went past the back of Villeneuve's ship, the Boussantour, yeah, and the front of the Redoutable. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, the Redoutable was the best ship in the Spanish fleet, and apparently had the best marksman. It in had the, the best. It had well. the best marksman. It had a company of Marines on board, a whole company of Marines like sea soldiers. Yeah. And they were the best trained or crew in the Spanish fleet. And victory decides that it's going to go in front of it. Because <laughs> Nelson had balls. Uh, the Red Table realised what was going on, yeah. tried to close the gap. It was unsuccessful. Um... The Red Etable tried to stop the victory by firing at its sails and its rigging. And 
it caused some serious damage. It knocked all three masts of the HMS Victory down to about the third of their normal size. Wow, so it did a, did a good shot. Before they even got to the line. Having got to the line, Victory raked the Boussanteur. Now that's, what the, that's the term they use for firing the guns into the rear of the ship. Yeah. Victory used double and triple shot. So, yeah, again, instead of sending 50 cannonballs, it's 100 yeah. each side. Yeah. So, you've got... The Victory has now blasted Villeneuve's ship almost to pieces. Yeah, which is good. It is, but they didn't stop. Because of their sailing ships, there's yeah. no brakes. Yeah, so it just had to keep So going. the Victory went through the line. The Red Otable turned and followed the victory yeah so you've now got hms victory with a lot of people killed on the upper deck very few sails the bousson tour uh, uh has is virtually out of it the red retabler is now turning and it's going alongside the victory yeah it's a more conventional yep well, they got pretty close as well didn't they the two ships now the um, the Red Utabla was firing all over the place. They were broadsiding HMS Victory, and Victory was doing the same. Both ships became locked together. Yeah. Now you've got a problem, because on the top of the Red Utabla, on the top deck, you've got marksmen. You've got marines. You've got the the guns victory has been taking fire for over an hour there's virtually nobody on top of on the top deck of the victory except for one man stood looking <laughs> like a sore thumb who stands out a mile away because he wouldn't take his coat off the french on the red table the captain ordered boarding parties yeah all the soldiers on the ship went to the top deck with grappling hooks ready to swing across and take HMS Victory. The Victory was going to lose. And it lost. Fortunately for the Victory, the Temeraire arrived. That was the second ship directly behind. Yeah. The Temeraire, because the Victory had been taking all the shots, the Temeraire was virtually undamaged. It sailed alongside the Red Otabla, and then you've got canister so it took everyone out on the top took deck everybody out on the top deck wow if the temeraire had not arrived then victory would have lost victory would have been overcome would have and would have lost yeah and if, to be fair if we'd have lost you'd have lost victory at the start then that would have been it wouldn't it that would we'd, have been we'd it have lost the battle they'd have lost the battle now all the other british ships are turning up yeah. And there's fights going on absolutely everywhere. Quarter past one, Nelson is walking around the quarter deck, which is just, it's a covered deck, but at the rear of the ship. It is open, but it's not, if you get what I mean. It's got a roof. Yeah. And he was walking around with the cap Captain Hardy. Hardy suddenly notices that Nelson isn't there. Turns around, Nelson's on his knees. 
Yeah. Now, a French sharpshooter in the fighting top, which you'd probably call a crow's nest nowadays, but mm. it was called a fighting top then, has fired a musket at the man wearing a decorated coat. It's hit him on the left shoulder and goes into his chest. Yeah, hit his spine, didn't it? The, um, the unfortunate thing is the person he's hit is Lord Nelson. Yeah. So Nelson is on his knees and he's gone down. But he's gone down in exactly the same place as his secretary. All right. 30, 30, 35 minutes before. So the blood that you see on the outside of Nelson's coat in the museum is not his, it's John Scott's. All right. The underclothes, under his jacket, that's Nelson's. But the, the blood on the outside is actually his secretary's. Oh, that's interesting. So, the um, before Hardy can get to Nelson, um, a Royal Marine captain and two sailors have picked him up. They take him downstairs. He knew, didn't he? He said he, he said it's done. He said, yeah. He said they've done it. Um, they carried him down to uh, what they call the cockpit. And the cockpit is below the waterline. It's where all the injured sailors and, and, and crew go and the surgeons are down there. Yeah. So unless the, sick, the ship sinks, it's the safest part. It's the safest part of the ship. Now... Nelson turns around to Hardy and says, they've done for me at last. Yeah. And he replies, I hope not. Nelson says, yes, my backbone is shot through. Nelson's lost all his feeling in his legs. He knows he's going. Yeah, he knows he's not going to. The um, Nelson tells the surgeon, don't worry about me, save the ones you can. So even right when he knows he's he's dying, his thoughts are with the crew of the ship rather yeah. than himself. One fifty-five. so 10 minutes after Nelson is shot, the captain of the Red Utabla surrenders. 99 fit men out of a crew of 643, 81% casualty rate. Wow, that's a seriously high casualty rate. Yeah. Um, the victory is out of the fight. She's attached to the Red Utabla. The Red Utabla has surrendered. Victory can't go anywhere. It's got no sails. It's got no masts. So she's out of the fight. At the same time, the Royal Sovereign is also out of the fight. Right. See, that's interesting because you assume, really, that the victory fought all the way to the end. Not. The victory. Did it did actually fire some other shots uh, right towards the end of the battle? Um, there was a part of the, the the front third of Villeneuve's fleet because it was sailing on. It missed the battle. It took a long time for that front third to turn around and come back. By that time, the French and Spanish fleet had almost been defeated, so they had a sort of a, it little, was a little tiny yeah. sort of we'll have a go but they didn't <laughs> we'll have a go but i'm not really into this but we're gonna lose this one so they made off but victory fought in the uh the counter-attack yeah but uh to all intents and purposes the victory was out Brilliant of the fight job. 
you've got um, 215, the Santa Ana surrendered to the Royal Sovereign. But the Royal Sovereign, again, no masts, totally immobilised, didn't pay any further part in the battle. Yeah. By half past two, so we're talking an hour and 15 after Nelson's shot. Yeah. Seven Spanish fleets surrendered. Seven ships of the Spanish fleet had surrendered. Now, Nelson was still sitting down in the hull in the victory. He was still alive at this he point. He was still alive. And the uh, the doctor, the surgeon, Dr. Beatty, had told him that there was nothing he could do for him. Yeah, which he kind of knew that anyway, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nelson kept in touch with what was going on. There were people going up and down telling him what was going on throughout the whole of the thing. Even Hardy managed two visits to Lord Nelson. On Hardy's second visit, he told Nelson that 12 of the enemy had surrendered. And Nelson, he weren't too bad with it, he weren't too happy with that, because he wanted more. Yeah, he always wanted more. He always wanted more. Uh, The battle finally ended at half past five. Right. Right. So, so the fighting stopped at half past five. So it's been going on for f- four hours. Yeah. Um, 17 enemy ships had been captured. One was on fire. Four had escaped, but they were captured. Yeah. A couple of weeks later. The 11 that were the front third of the, the fleet, they made it back to Cadiz. So they got they, they took seventeen ships. I think didn't he actually say he wanted twenty when he came down? He came and, said, and said he wanted no, twenty. I, said, I want I wanted twenty. I'm glad with one, but I wanted twenty. Yeah. The official battle ended at quarter to six when the Achille exploded. That was the ship that was on fire. It actually exploded. It took four hundred and eighty men with her. Why were they still on board when it's on fire? I thought that was nowhere to go. Fifty miles offshore. Where do you go? Well, yeah, that's true, I suppose. Yeah. So, I'll give you a couple of statistics. Yeah. A total of 449 British sailors were killed. 1,217 wounded. That's quite a high rate when you think we only had 17,000. The Spanish and French... 4,408 dead. Wow. 2,545 wounded. 20,000 taken prisoner. Okay, so that's that's quite a bit of a difference there. Yeah. So, British victory. Yeah. No doubt, 100%. Um, The results, the British fleet started with 27 ships mm-hmm. ended 27 ships combined fleet started with 33 they lost 22 and 11 made it back to cadiz so yeah it was uh that's the thing with sea battles at this time that they were never it was never really a hundred percent who'd won because a lot of the when they're fighting in that line that if you were taking on damage you just disappeared so there was no real guaranteed winner in any 
any no. naval battles until this battle. Until this battle. That was HMS conclusive. Victory on its own suffered 57 fatal casualties, the highest of any ship in the British fleet. They were, obviously, Nelson, his secretary, the captain of the Marines, one lieutenant, or lieutenant, depending on whether you're American or not, two midshipmen, Captain's Clark, 32 seamen, 18 Marines, all killed. 102 wounded. See, now that, that sounds quite high, but when you think how many were actually on that ship and how long that ship was being pounded, attacked, yeah... And you've got splinters and... I mean, the splinters aren't the little things that you get. Oh, no, these are you know, shards these of are wood. These are shards of wood, foot long, two foot long. Yeah, you well, know, they'll cut you in half. There's no... There's no easy way around that whatsoever. Yeah. Now, obviously, Nelson died. He did. Yeah. We're talking the battle, 21st of October. Yeah. News of Nelson's death did not reach the UK until one o'clock on the 6th of November. Bloody hell. So, so there's no internet, instant. No, no. It it's took, like, it took... Took as long as it took the ships. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the 6th of November they realised Nelson had been killed. He prepared, though. He was ready for it. He uh, the bat- One of the battles, I think it was the Battle of the Nile, he uh, took a French ship... When he took the French ship, he took it back to England, and the wood from that ship was used to make his coffin. It was also the bed that he slept in. Yeah, that's. I love that. I love the fact that when, he used when you when you joined a Royal Navy ship as an officer, they made you a cot. That yeah. was your sleeping, basically a sleeping box. Yeah. When you died, they put a lid on that box, tipped you over the side. Yeah. There is a reason why people were tipped over the side. Yeah, because of the the length of time it took to get back to port or whatever, oh, definitely. The, they had to bury people at sea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes you couldn't sense. have weeks and weeks of corpses laying laying on deck for weeks and weeks. No, and as we've seen, some of them, you're talking 40, 50 plus. Yeah. And that's on a ship that won. Yeah. So they just couldn't do it. Nelson was different. Yes. Yeah. They decided collectively... That Lord Nelson, being one as famous as he was, and, oh, he, and was, he was more popular than the king. Yeah, he was, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't a nobody. He was the real celebrity in England. Then he wasn't was he? the number one celebrity. Um, so they had to think of a way of of getting him back. But because he was that famous, they couldn't take him back as a decomposing corpse. Yeah. So what they decided to do was they would. Put him in some alcohol. Yes. Now, British ships, because they had been at sea for months and months, you can't keep fresh water on, on a ship for months and months. No. Nowadays, you can. But in those days, you couldn't. That's... So the British Navy, the sailors, they drunk beer. And rum. And rum and brandy. That's my drink, rum. So they have a lot of alcohol on British ships. Yes. What they decided to do with Nelson was find the biggest barrel that they could find. Yeah. Which just happened to be a brandy barrel and put him in it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh I, I one of that was one of my little things that you weren't taught in school. Yeah. Yeah. They was putting a, 
a barrel and brought home. Yeah, he was put in a brandy barrel. <laughs> Don't think anybody'd want to drink the brandy afterwards. No, I can't imagine. Although would, I bet that brandy it, was worth millions if they'd. Well, it would be it. today, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, but there you go. It was Nelson was brought back to the UK for that. Yeah, I think he was a bit gutted as well because I remember there's uh, a famous quote that he said to Hardy just before the battle, and he said, um, "It's uh, victory or." Um, Westminster Abbey hmm. so he, he knew he was either going to win or he was going to die and then he ended up being buried in St Paul's Cathedral so he didn't even get <laughs> didn't Westminster even get, Abbey didn't even get that um, the British ships now you know like we said right at the beginning the British ships took took prizes yes so the British ships took the Spanish and French fleets that they'd surrendered towed their ships they, yeah. towed, they towed them back to the U, to, to England to the UK As some of them that were in better condition, they put what they call a prize crew on. That's a very, very small crew to sail it back. Okay. Um, Unfortunately for the British, the the evening of the 21st, the 22nd and the 23rd of of October that year, there was one hell of a storm. Right. And during that storm... Five of the captured ships actually sank, including the Redoutable and the Boussantaire. Oh. Uh, one of the ships, uh, the Algesaris, uh, the prize crew couldn't hold it in the storm, so they let the Spanish crew out to help them. <laughs> and guess what happened? They took the ship back. They took the ship yeah. back, yeah. <laughs> they took the ship back and reached Cadiz. Well, at least at least they didn't one, die at sea. One, one of the eleven, but typical of the Spanish treatment of prisoners, they released the British back to uh, to England. Well, that's fair enough. So they just released them. Yeah, which is kind of good because I don't think the British would have done the same. I think the British well, would have put we, them in prison. We weren't really known for being fair, though, were we? Back in. You know, there's a lot of things that this country has not been fair about. Um, <laughs> yes, and that's we won't get into that. Yeah, I want to keep my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But now, what was the result of Trafalgar? Nelson, uh, Napoleon couldn't invade Britain. Yes, he gave up. Uh, eventually, leading to his on-land defeat at yeah. the Battle of Waterloo, which we will be covering with the Duke of Wellington. Um, the Royal Navy was declared worldwide almost unbeatable. Nobody challenged the Royal Navy for over a 100 years. Yeah. As a result, British Britain was the number one seafaring nation. Well, we still are, let's be honest. The Germans yeah. tried it in World War One and they failed. They tried in World War Two and they failed. No one's beaten us. Mm. We're the best. Yeah. Even, even the Americans haven't tried it yet, so... Yeah, I don't want to try them. I'm just saying they haven't tried it. So this is true. But because of the Battle of Trafalgar, Britain ruled the waves. Yeah, Britain was able to make an empire. The British Empire was based and started at the Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah, the first time the Royal Navy came up against any competition whatsoever was in World War One, the Battle of Jutland against the German high seas fleet, and that was a almost a draw. No, both won. both sides reckon they won. We won. Yeah. <laughs> the Germans sank more ships, but we killed more sailors. And yeah. both sides went home. Yeah. So, yeah. So, 
for over a hundred years, Britain ruled the waves. Yeah. As a result of the Battle of Trafalgar. And I will play, at the end of this episode, I'm going to play two songs. I'm going to play, what was it called? It was the Royal Navy song. The Royal Navy, Heart of Oak. Yeah, and I'm also going to play uh, Royal Britannia, because as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, this is where this song comes from. This is why it's, you know... It's why it is. Yeah, yeah. I, the, it, I, when I started this podcast, I toyed with the idea of putting um, that as the introduction tune to Royal Britannia, However, the second line of Rule Britannia didn't seem very politically correct in the current climate, and therefore that is why I never went with that as the introduction. However, but in this episode, I it's think appropriate. It's, it's appropriate, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, But there we are. That's uh, the Battle of Trafalgar. The, uh, we came very close to losing it, but we, we didn't. didn't. No, and Nelson is commemorated everywhere in this country. Like, see, you go into Norfolk... Um, as you go into Norfolk, it says "Welcome to Norfolk, Nelson's con- N- Nelson's County." Um, I mean, this is 220 years after he mm-hmm. died, so you know that Nor- uh, Norfolk are very proud of him. Um, you can't really go anywhere in London without. I mean, everyone knows Trafalgar Square, yeah, um, and you know Nelson's columns extremely famous. You go down to Portsmouth, and the Victory still exists. Um, there's actually a little star on the. Uh, on the victory um, and it says Nelson fell here so there's actually a commemorative um, I don't I would say a bit of metal I don't really know it's what it is plaque. Yeah, it's, it's a plaque it's a plaque on the deck and did you know that HMS Victory is the world's oldest commissioned warship oh it's still it's still the flagship of the British Royal Navy wow I didn't know that so it still sails if they wanted it to um, yeah it's been a museum piece for god knows how many years nearly a century I think but yeah. but yes it is still a commissioned warship yeah so it's still quite a good and if you ever get a chance to, to go down to Portsmouth and see it go and yeah. see it because you it are, is fantastic yeah if you are down there if you ever get a chance there is another very famous ship there which is the Mary Rose which is about 200 years 300 years before that Mm-hmm. The Mary Rose is down there, the wreck of the Mary Rose, which was a Tudor ship. So, mm. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's an amazing, amazing place. I think I've only ever been once, um, but somewhere I'd like to go again. Um, yeah, fantastic. Great story. Um, I said it's a massive part of English history. Um, very, very, you know, topical, I think. Uh, very good, a good thing to, to be covering. And like I said, it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's famous, and I, I mean, I I actually had um, there was a couple of people, not just not just one. I actually had a couple of messages. One person put it on the group. But I did have a couple of messages from people saying, "Who is Nelson?" And you almost forget because in England, you you know Nelson. Everyone knows Nelson. No one's. I don't know anybody in England who's not heard the story of of Ab, uh, Horatio Nelson, and it's it's very sort of ingrained into us. But obviously, outside of England, I. He might not be that that famous, but well, he's not as famous as Napoleon in France. No, no, I suppose not. He's disliked. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there we go. But yeah, so there, there we go. So that's the story of of Trafalgar. So that is the the particular battle. Um, so obviously, if you have listened to the other episode, which is about Lord Nelson before the Battle of Trafalgar, if you haven't listened to that, get onto that and listen onto that one as well. Um, both very good episodes 
Um, but yeah, like I said, we're going to finish off with a couple of songs for you. So I hope you did enjoy that. And if you stick with us to listen to the music, then enjoy. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Come cheer up, my lads, tis to glory we steer To add something more to this wonderful year To honor we call you as free men, not slaves For who are so free as the sons of the waves? Hearts of all our ships, jolly tons of our men, we always are ready, steady, boys, steady. We fight and we conquer again and again. We never see our foes, but we wish them to stay. They never see us, but they wish us away.
smile with matchless, with matchless beauty crown, and man me hard. 